counts, the nation's immigration courts are overburdened. Valley immigration attorneys are concerned. They say new production quota placed on immigration judges may not help Approximately 800,000 cases being handled by around 400 immigration judges. In every judges. case before them, immigration judges are the arbiter. Over and over again, from various administrations, the court has been used as a messaging tool for law enforcement policies of the executive branch. Their court have legal permission to stay in the U.S., or if they may have to be deported. There are core issues with the immigration court system that are the reason we see problems like enormous backlog and, and a political sway over immigration judges. And these problems, because they're inherent in the court system, actually extend back pretty far. In 1983, when you guys created Eeyore, you actually tried to solve a lot of the issues that she's currently bringing up. So in this episode, what I really want to do is highlight some of the things that y'all tried to fix in 1983 and how some of those issues were really institutional issues. And as a result of not actually changing the structure of the institution, just dividing the institution into smaller bits, how that's not necessarily helpful because we end up in a situation where we run into the same problems years later when the system as a whole has increased, thus increasing this newer subdivision to the size that the agency was in 1983. Yeah, I think we're talking about the, we are talking about the Executive Office for Immigration Review, known affectionately uh, by Winnie the Pooh fans as Eeyore, after that lovable donkey. I think at INS, prior to the 1983 spinoff of Eeyore, we were hitting some of the same walls that the immigration courts are hitting now. There was a, an assumption that because the courts were in INS, which was also the enforcement branch for immigration and where all the prosecutors were housed, that it was less than independent. There were backlogs of transcribing cases and the judges had to rely on the district offices for support. The district officers were the ones prosecuting the case and the support was bodied. There wasn't as much inconsistency in asylum outcomes as there is now. There were many fewer judges and uh, almost all the asylum cases were denied unless they came from a communist country and had a favorable recommendation from the Department of State. So in that way, I suppose it was more consistent, but there certainly were inconsistencies in procedures, how fast the judges docketed the cases and how fast the cases got transcribed. Yeah, so I mean, many of those problems that we had, we had inconsistency problems, they weren't necessarily the asylum inconsistency problems, but there were definitely inconsistencies in how long it took to complete a case. You know, I think those times were different also because at that time, it was during the Reagan administration, so we're not talking about a, a knee-jerk liberal administration here, but we do, it did add conservative leaders, I think, at the Department of Justice and at the, the INS who, who valued due process and a fair court system. In particular, the commissioner, Al Nelson, who was a lawyer himself, the general counsel, Maurice C. Iron Mike uh, Inman Jr., and the associate, well-known associate attorney general at that time was Rudy Giuliani. So, so I think there was even in a very conservative law enforcement-oriented administration, an appreciation of the need for a fair justice system and judicial system. And I think also a realization that if you were going to have a, 
an effective enforcement program than the orders that you were producing in the immigration court system had to be credible and in the end enforceable in federal court. And I think with the problems in the immigration court system at that time, I think often led courts to send the cases back or to be skeptical about whether people were really getting a fair hearing resulting in a final order of removal. And there was also general agreement that running a court system wasn't really within the wheelhouse of INS as an agency, that INS was basically a law enforcement agency, an agency for doing informal adjudications, but trying to run a fairly complicated quasi-judicial body really was not in the mainstream of the INS mission. And the expertise and technical support to do that just really didn't exist in the INS at that time. Right. You're right. I mean, it it is good that at least now we have a system where the people in charge are people who've at least seen how a national immigration court system should be functioning. So there's that as a minimum. (laughs) And what's also true is that they have different resources like consulting companies who can come in and do reviews and tell them exactly how they're doing and things that they need to change. So they do have that as a minimum. But here's the thing. The system can always be improved, right? And in the 80s, there was this huge push for immigration reform. I mean, on a national scale. And now I feel like we don't have anything even similar to that in terms of uh, this desire to massively reform the system or to undertake the kind of massive change that the system needs. Well, as I said earlier, Marika, I think the EOR was created from the immigration courts and the INS uh, to combat the perception that INS either wasn't or wasn't capable of giving fair hearings. The old INS structure, there was the attorney general, then the commissioner reported to the attorney general, deputy commissioner reported to the commissioner. There were regional commissioners, district directors, and there was a, a chief immigration judge, but the chief immigration judge was actually on the commissioner's staff. Actually, the chief immigration judge sat in the next office from the general counsel. So just the perception that this really wasn't an independent court system. And the chief immigration judge really had no staff. I think maybe one secretary, but there were no field staff and really... Ah, so the INS didn't have a cohesive structure? Well, INS was big. In fact, I think at one time, I remember doing a legal executive council meeting, one of the district directors telling us that his experience was at any time in INS, at least 10% of the files were missing. And of the 10% missing, 90% of them were probably located in the office that reported them missing in the first place. It also took a while, sort of like it's happening now, it took a while to fill vacancies because immigration judge vacancies had a special procedure for filling them and they weren't necessarily the top priority. It was more or less a good old boy system where one of the senior trial attorneys who prosecuted cases in the immigration court usually moved up and became the immigration judge in that office when there was a vacancy. I think a lot of people looked at it as a career promotion ladder for INS trial attorneys, prosecutors. There were almost, there were very few judges who came from outside INS and and there were very few judges that came really from anywhere other than the prosecuting attorney staff in the office 
uh, where the judgeship was located. And I think that also added to the perception that this really wasn't an independent court system. And then there were problems with- Right, okay, wait. And this is a, that's a real big issue because the goal of a trial attorney is to win the case. But in this case, winning the case means getting the deportation, right? Yeah, that's true. Although I, you know, I, I think a good prosecutor is also fair. I mean, I, I always told people when I was the deputy general counsel, acting general counsel, that responsibility of a, a Justice Department attorney is to see that justice is done. So I think fairness should be an aspect, although that might not be, I, I agree or admit that that might not be the public perception of the function of a prosecuting attorney. There was also a problem in getting the cases transcribed and up to the Board of Immigration Appeals uh, when they were appealed. All of this was under the control of the local office the immigration judge often didn't have a, an individual clerical staff. They shared staff with the district director. Sometimes they shared staff with the local trial attorney, and it was sort of the whim of the district director whether the judge's work got transcribed timely or not. So you can imagine that a judge who was perceived as, as too liberal might or might not, I mean, maybe they'd expedite his transcripts because they wanted the cases reversed, or maybe they'd just sit on them so that the cases never got finalized and the relief never became final. There were all sorts of tricks that could be played, and the whole system didn't look like a court. Wait, why exactly wouldn't the district director forward the immigration judge's transcripts? Well, if the government appeals and the transcripts never forwarded, then the board never completes the case and the person never gets relief. <laughs> They're just sitting. I ju Why does that benefit anyone? Well, I don't know. If you don't want the person to get adjustment of status or you don't want their proceedings to be terminated, I suppose just putting them on ice uh, keeps them from getting status. I mean, I know there were problems in transcribing the cases. I don't, you know, sometimes it could have been negligence. Other times I think it probably had to do with the the district office's feelings about the judge, but it, it still was problematic uh, getting the cases transcribed and uh, forwarded to the board. And the board at that time was a separate body within the Department of Justice, and the board really had no control over its own appellate records. They had to rely totally on the INS to get the cases transcribed and forwarded. So sometimes it, it could literally be years after somebody filed a notice of appeal and the case still wouldn't have reached the board because the local office hadn't taken care of uh, transcribing the record and forwarding it. And since the local office didn't work for the board or the chairman of the board, they really, you know, other than maybe complaining to the commissioner or the general counsel, they, they had no real control over uh, how fast records got forwarded. Moreover, the courtrooms you know, looked about like uh, we're sitting on the porch today, but a couple days ago we were sitting in our dining room, and that's probably about the size of the old immigration courtrooms. What? Uh, well, there weren't separate courtrooms in most courts. The the judges' chamber, the judges' chambers, doubled as the courtroom. Usually there was a desk and then there was a table coming out from the desk, and so the judge's papers would be all over the desk, and the table would be where the hearing was conducted. Everybody, oh the prosecutor, the witnesses, 
uh, the respondent all and the judge all basically sat around the same table. And well, and the judge and the judge judges usually in those days, maybe a few of them wore robes, but they didn't uniformly wear robes. So the judge was just another lawyer in a coat and tie. You know, I'm not sure some people even knew the difference between the judge and prosecutors. So the whole thing just didn't look very much like a court proceeding. It looked, if anything, probably more like a mediation or uh, some kind of office uh, meeting. And there wasn't really much training. Judges were mostly selected from the ranks of trial attorneys, so it was assumed that they knew the procedures, knew what was happening in that office. They'd watched the judge before them, so it was sort of OTJ training, which made it difficult if in the rare cases where somebody was hired outside the system, they really didn't have much of a model to look at or, or to emulate. So the idea that we came up with, and that I think it was Associate Attorney General Giuliani who approved it, was combining the BIA, which already existed and was a, a respected organization that uh, was considered to be uh, professional and well-managed with the immigration courts and having the chairman of the Board of Immigration Appeals, who was then David Milholland, be in charge of the immigration courts as well as the board. And interesting, Milholland, he became the first director of EOR. Can you describe Dave Milholland's personality to me? Well, he was very industrious. I mean, Dave, Dave took his job seriously. But I know one thing that he had worked for INS and he considered the INS to be sort of a management morass. <laughs> Dave was not overly enthusiastic about the creation of Eeyore and being in charge of it because he thought the immigration courts were largely out of control. And because the courts were all over the country, I think he understood reforming the immigration court system and getting it to function more like a, a court system was going to be a much bigger job than getting a handle uh, on the Board of Immigration Appeals. So I think his overall view was you're taking my, uh, my well-running organization and you're combining it with a dysfunctional organization and you're, you're expecting me uh, to solve the problem. Yeah, that's a fair point on Dave's part, but Dave also wasn't the only man involved in creating Eeyore. I was hoping we could go through the whole cast of characters, starting with a very memorable man. So, uh, Paul, can you tell me a little bit about Mike Inman? Yeah, I mean, Mike was, he was known as, uh, not usually to his face, uh, to his face he was Mike, but uh, behind his back he was often referred to as Iron Mike, and I often thought of Mike as a combination of the legendary coach of the Green Bay Packers. I was a big Packer fan growing up, and Vince Lombardi came to mind, sort of the winning is everything and very tough coach, combined with the fictional mafia chieftain Don Corleone. That was sort of Mike's style. And you know, he was a dominant figure in INS, Mike was sort of a larger-than-life personality, and he'd run his own law firm, and he wasn't used to bureaucracy. When he said something, he was used to having it happen. Mike lived a little bit different lifestyle than the average general counsel attorney. And I remember his idea of a bargain. He, he was very proud of the fact that he 
got us a government rate at the Ritz-Carlton in uh, Boston. And then he suggested uh, we go out to eat at his favorite place, the Lockover Cafe, which happens to be the most expensive restaurant in Boston. And we had a nice dinner with a, you know, had a few bottles of wine. And then we split the check. So traveling with Mike was sort of a lost leader. He had a voice about as loud as mine, and he could get pretty excited at times. I remember uh, once I was in my office as deputy general counsel, I was talking to somebody on the phone, and an associate general counsel, Bill Joyce, came dashing in. He said, Schmidt, Schmidt, you got to come. Mike yelled at Milt, and Milt fainted. He's out cold. Uh, Milt was our then budget officer. He wasn't an attorney. He had come from another division, and apparently Mike didn't like some of the figures he'd come up with and was challenging him in a rather aggressive, loud manner, and Milt just couldn't take it. So he did get Milt back on his feet, but it wasn't long thereafter that he, not surprisingly, transferred to another division. How did he react when he saw how the courts were operating? Uh, he thought they were Mickey Mouse, and he was incredulous at some of the... Mi- uh, w- wait, what do you mean by yeah, Mickey he thought Mouse? It was a, he, he thought it wasn't a real court system, and he, he was incredulous at the way few of the attorneys were presenting the cases. We had just done an attorney reorganization to get all the attorneys under the general counsel's control and out of the district offices, and as part of that, we had absorbed a large number of attorneys who spent their careers in non-litigating positions as naturalization examiners, but because we'd absorbed them, we had to retrain them and send them to court. Some were great lawyers, but a few were sort of uh, not what you'd expect a litigator. And unfortunately, Mike walked in on a couple examples of that, and he, I remember saying, that person, that person works for me? That, that's not, that's not legal work. What, what's going on here? So I, I remember he was very upset to find out that when we appealed cases to the Board of Immigration Appeals, that the service seldom prepared an appellate brief. And he, he had me order everybody to, in the future, every appeal had to be accompanied by an INS brief. And I know that wasn't necessarily the most popular order (laughs) that I ever gave. But I think Mike liked to win, and I think he wanted the courts to be worthy of winning yet. (laughs) He did see the issue that if the courts weren't well regarded and viewed as independent, then it would minimize INS's being able to win cases and enforce the law and that the appellate courts wouldn't respect the final orders. So how did he get to understand local offices? Headquarters uh, was in uh, Chester Arthur Building in Washington, D.C., and it got Most of the operations were in the field, almost the whole operation was in the field. And Mike, he liked to get the feel of what was happening in the courts and the field offices. And so he had us on the road all the time, traveling around, talking to the district directors, talking to the sector chiefs, talking to the U.S. attorneys. We often took the Office of Immigration Litigation with us. And if you need help, we're here to help you. And I think it did make a impression. We were probably the best known folks in the central office by the field offices because we showed up and we showed up. We always tried to solve on the way back. Mike would, (laughs) on the plane, we'd solve the problem. And we needed to talk to Commissioner Nelson, whatever we had to do. Wait, okay. So can you tell me a bit more about the commissioner? 
What do you think his motivation might have been to reform the courts? Well, I think similar to Mike's. Uh, Al Nelson was a lawyer. He was from California. He had, he had good connections. I think Al, like Mike, saw the advantages of having a fair court system that would be credible to the Article Three federal courts. He was a fan of strong law enforcement, and I think he felt that uh, if you were going to have strong law enforcement, then you needed a credible court system to make your law enforcement activities stand up and credible. And what about you, Paul? What did you do? Well, my role is I was everybody's draftsman. Uh, folks sort of knew what they wanted to do, but they didn't know quite how to do it and how to explain it and how to explain, you know, uh, clearly uh, Nelson and Inman and Rudy Giuliani didn't spend a lot of time reading the federal regulations and figuring out uh, what regulations might have to be changed and what organizational changes might have to be made. And, you know, my job was sort of to put the policies into a decision type of memo that could be worked through the department bureaucracy. Ah, and can you tell me about the people who put in the work to standardize and organize the system? People like Bill Roby? Yeah, uh, the first chief immigration judge was uh, William R. Bill Roby, and he was also a character. He had been the head of the Office of Attorney Personnel Management, so he was basically the main attorney personnel person. Every attorney hire in the department had to be uh, had to go through his office, and he had the rank of Deputy Associate Attorney General, but he could have been an Associate Deputy Attorney General. But at any rate, he was a small man with a huge ego and a huge personality. Uh, some people viewed him as sort of a Polyonic figure, others sort of as a martinet, but Bill was somebody that you didn't really trifle with. And so he had a reputation of somebody who knew how to make the trains uh, run on time and to uh, make things orderly. Uh, and, I, you know, a little bit of a, a micromanager, but you know, maybe the system needed micromanaging at that time. And last but not least, can you tell me about Tony? Well, then there was Tony Moscato, an another character who uh, had a lot to do with Eeyore, both at the beginning and then later on. And, and he was known as a management whiz, somebody that knew the organization of the department, knew how to get things done. Yeah, Rudy Giuliani at that time was the associate attorney general. So he wanted to change the immigration courts? Yeah, no, he, he did want to change the courts. I do remember that I, thinking at the time that even the great hall of the department wouldn't really be big enough to hold Mike and Rudy's egos at the same time. I also remember being in his office because it had, I forgot, it was either one or two seats from the old Yankee Stadium were uh, in his office. So that was why, I know he was a baseball fan. But Rudy really didn't have a huge say in who became director of Eeyore. So uh, in general, how did you guys decide who to put in that position? Yeah, I think that was, a, that was a little funky. They were creating two new organizations at once, both pushed really by Nelson, Inman, and Schmidt. One was, one was Eeyore, and the other was the Office of Immigration Litigation. Al, Nelson, Al and Mike and I had been unhappy with the treatment of immigration 
litigation in the federal courts within the Department of Justice. It had been assigned to a division in the criminal division that had other duties. It was called the government regulation and labor section. But given the amount of immigration litigation, we felt that we needed experts. And actually, I drafted up a proposal for Mike that proposed that the Office of General Counsel would be happy to take over all of the immigration litigation in the circuit courts of appeals and supervising the district courts. You know, I think the department, there were people in the department who didn't like that because that would have upset the apple cart, there was a general feeling that agencies, including internal agencies like uh, INS, shouldn't have do their own court litigation or eventually the department and the solicitor general would lose control. But we did sort of compromise on a, a better treatment of immigration litigation. In the first place, since most of it was civil, we thought that having it in the criminal division gave courts the wrong impression and might have encouraged them to apply quasi-criminal and criminal standards rather than civil standards. So it was moved to the civil division and division to concentrate solely on immigration litigation known as the Office of Immigration Litigation was created. So both the chief judge job and the Office of Immigration Litigation job were up to be filled by senior executives at the same time and as uh, luck would have it. One of the finalists for the Office of Immigration Litigation job was a guy named Bob Bombau, who was had gone around the country with Mike and me as a special litigation counsel in the department. Yeah, we're going to get into the internal problems with enacting institutional changes a bit later. But also, I wanted to talk a bit about other important things that Bill did, like like Bill created a new court administration system, right? And a lot of the aspects of that admin system you all still use today. Even when I was a judge you know, decades later, that the master calendar was really a great system. I, I think probably the majority of my caseload, one way or the other, got disposed of at the master calendar stage and then only the things that really had a need for a full hearing got moved over to the hearing schedule. So that was a, a major innovation in how things were scheduled, how things were screened, and allowing cases that really where all people wanted to do was go home or there was a simple answer, or the government was going to dismiss the charge to get taken care of right away instead of waiting in line behind a lot of cases that needed uh, full hearings. What are the other important changes he made? Well, the other another really important change was he, he took the transcription out of the local offices. Instead of trying to have a local transcriber in every office, he, he instituted simultaneous oral decisions at the end of the hearing, contemporaneous oral decisions. And then that decision, along with the whole transcript of everything that had gone on, was mailed to a centralized contract transcription unit for transcription, which meant that the courts were no longer dependent on local conditions or local hires. It gave the chief judge control over all the transcripts, ways of standardizing them, and through the transcription contract and making sure that they were professionally transcribed by people who actually came to understand all the lingo and what was happening in, in immigration courts. So that was a huge change. 
He also started the system of having sub-supervisors. He had four assistant chief immigration judges who worked with him and helped him run things in the field. Although I must say, compared to today's cast of uh, dozens of assistant chief judges, his operation looked pretty lean in, in those days. The other thing he did, which created some tension with the local offices, was he did want the courts to have an appearance of independence, and that meant he had a preference for courts had often been located either right in with the district director, right next to the legal counsel's office in the district office, which of course was convenient for the service because all their files were right there. And Bill preferred uh, whenever he had the chance to have the court located independently, uh, either in another building or he, he liked to be in the federal building with the other courts whenever possible. And so the issue of co-location, whether the court was going to be in the same building, on another floor in the same building, or, or nearby, or in the federal building became an issue because, of course, the, the, more, the further the court was away, the more troublesome it was for the district office to get the attorneys over there and to shuffle the files over. And then, of course, I think some district directors felt that, that having a court in your, on your floor was a status symbol and that having the court move out somehow reduce their uh, their status. Yeah, we're going to get into the internal problems with enacting institutional changes a bit later. But also, I wanted to talk a bit about other important things that Bill did. Like, Bill created a new court administration system, right? Yeah, I mean, that was important. He created, he had a professional court administrator who reported directly to headquarters appointed in almost every court. He, he liked to have courts. He didn't like one judge courts and he had a tendency if he thought to combine courts so there'd be a critical mass. But his idea was that the judges should be there just to do the judging and that all the administration should be done by uh, non-judicial uh, officials. And it also gave him a way of controlling. He was sort of a control freak and by having control over the court administrators. It also gave him a lot of administrative control over each of the courts. He also he issued what was known as OPPMs. They were like instruction, internal instructions to the court. And they were sort of like an administrative manual for the court system. So it dealt with a lot of the administrative parts uh, of the court system. And that system still exists today. Another thing I'd say he did that hadn't, you know, hadn't been done well in the past was, uh, you know, his interface with the local bar everywhere. Uh, Bill also, like Mike Inman, Bill liked to travel. And so uh, he often went out and visited the courts around the country. He had, he had training conferences. Whenever he went somewhere, he met with uh, the local district director. But he also met with uh, the local bar, the local AILA chapter, and talked to them about uh, what the courts were doing, what improvements were being made, uh, tried to set expectations, and also got their feedback on what problems they were having with the courts, uh, you know, what, what things they thought uh, were working and uh, didn't work. I mean, there were regulations, but they really didn't have much to do with standardizing. <laughs> they were, you know, they were mostly just delegations of authority to adjudicate cases, that's all. Now 
gonna talk a bit about what worked in setting up Eeyore and what, you know, didn't. <laughs> yeah, okay. I mean, I think the thing that improved immediately was the dockets. They were regularized, they were posted. You could figure out by looking at the docket in a particular court, you know, what the next master calendar hearing date would be, how far along they were in scheduling individual hearings, things that really hadn't been regularized and hadn't been readily available became available. So the dockets definitely ran more. And I think the time on the dockets was much better used. I know by the time I got there, most cases were never got beyond the master calendar screening stage. And I think that probably was always true that many of the cases, in the first place, some of them were going to be cases where people weren't going to show up. So why why schedule a, uh, a full hearing block for somebody who can't be served with the, the notice of hearing? Or many times all people wanted to do was get an order of voluntary departure. I also think that Bill generally did a good job of hiring, that he took some talented people from government and from private practice, and that at first I think that was a, re a welcome change in the system, more, more diversity, I think probably more talent, more people whose careers were really focused on good judging rather than folks that had just been in that location for a long time. And that's one of the areas where I think we've gone sort of the other way now that we're now back to almost where we were before Eeyore was created, where almost everybody, 90% of the people hired during the last administration were people from government backgrounds. Most of them were from DHS chief counsel's office or somewhere else in DHS. Virtually nobody from the private bar, from non-governmental organizations, or from uh, academic institutions like immigration clinics are hired anymore. So I think we're somewhat, we've somewhat cycled back to the closed organization problem that we had at the time Eeyore was created. I think the, the transcription process, something that uh, uh, we still use today, you know, one of the problems probably is that the, we do finally have digital audio recording. The transcription process was good. I think the system really hasn't advanced too much beyond the centralized transcription process where it, it could and should be using total e-filing now. So I think that what at one time was sort of a up-to-date technology. Now Eeyore is way behind the technological eight ball here. I want to make sure we get to talk about oral decisions because oral decisions now are basically being used as another method of streamlining cases, right? Because instead of having to take the time to do the research, uh, write up a decision, and in general, you know, take a little more time to think about the decision, judges are being encouraged to report their decisions right away after the hearing happens uh, in order to speed up adjudication times. But at the time Eeyore was created... At the time Eeyore was created, I think a lot of the hearings were unrepresented people. The hearings were shorter. Uh, you know, hearings of an hour or less were probably common. There weren't as many asylum applications. And because the Refugee Act had only been in place a few, a a few years, there just wasn't as much case law. Neither the board nor the appellate courts had as many interpretations as they had now. The whole issue of 
case law and uh, credibility findings hadn't come up. And there have been several congressional amendments since then. The cases have become more and more complex as more and more people are represented by lawyers and as the demands of what both the statutory changes and the appellate courts and the board are requiring have become more specific, the oral decision just doesn't work very well anymore. The types of very detailed credibility rulings that have to be made with cross-references of uh, voluminous records and documents, that's just very hard to do in an oral decision format. And I think as a result, a lot of the cases end up uh, looking pretty sloppy, looking to the appellate courts like uh, the, the immigration courts aren't taking things uh, seriously. And the result, I think, has been more and more rejections of immigration court and board rulings at the circuit court level, more returns for redos, which in the long run waste time. So I, I think while there probably still is a place for the oral decision, uh, it's hard to really see it as adequate in any contested case that's going to be appealed. And particularly, it's inadequate today, I think, for most asylum cases, which has really become the bread and butter of this system. Were people proud of the system they created in 1983? Yeah, I think they were very proud of it. I, I, know, uh, I know Bill was proud of it. I think Dave was proud of it. I, think they're, I remember their basic claim to fame was, we're not INS. <laughs> we're not INS. Oh, man, so much has changed. I mean, yeah, obviously it has been 35 years since 1983. So earlier we talked a bit more about how it's not just the amount of case law that's increased since then, but also just the sheer amount of cases that need to be seen. That number has also increased. Right. And I think that one of the problems has been that uh, so we have enforcement resources increasing uh, by multiples, yet the immigration courts are increasing by onesies and twosies here and there. So over time, the capacity of DHS, uh, which succeeded INS, to institute more cases uh, has far outstripped the ability of the court system to hear those cases. And another thing that at the beginning, there were there was very limited use of detention. So there were relatively few detain cases. Now there are 40,000, something like 40,000 people in DHS detention at, at any one time. There are detained cases in every uh, court, uh, and there are many more courts and detention centers, and a much larger percentage of the court system is made up of detained cases, yet some of the procedures are still more or less designed for a day when Many of the cases were non-detained cases, and, and there are differences. And at the beginning of EOR, there were no televideo hearings. Now televideo hearings uh, are the lifeblood of the detained docket, but the televideo system is yesterday's technology. It, uh, the pictures are distorted. The sound's no good. There's delays that make it hard for people to translate. The, the lines break down, causing... Uh, delays in hearing or having to reschedule hearings. So, uh, and just the whole system of having the detainee in one place and the judge and the attorneys in another place, uh, uh, you know, has put a real strain, I think, on 
right, right. due process. I think we're going to get to some of the internal problems with enacting institutional changes a bit later. But I also, what I really wanted to talk about are some of the important things that Bill did. Like, uh, you mentioned Bill created a new court administration system, there right? It was a system called the answer system. It was the computerized system for keeping track of cases and getting information, uh, data from the immigration court system. And at the time, I suppose it was state of the art. The problem was that was in 1983. And when I took the bench in 2003, 20 years later, they were still using a version of the answer system. But by now, you know, a lot of the software was no good anymore. The hardware was so out of date that it wasn't even serviceable anymore if it broke down. However good it might have been in the 1980s, it sort of became the system that time forgot. All right, Paul, now can we discuss what might work for the immigration court system? Well, I think what won't work is just, undoubtedly the system needs more resources. But I think just aimlessly throwing more bodies at it isn't going to work. I keep giving the analogy, if you have a, an antiquated plant that's turning out uh, defective automobiles, just speeding it up so it turns out more defective automobiles uh, doesn't solve the problem. And you basically have a system now that really isn't producing due process for the people in it. And until that's fixed and the system is capable of functioning in a way uh, to provide due process, just ramping it up or or making it go faster or putting more judges in it uh, is is as likely to compound the problem as it is uh, to fix the problem. So you'll you'll now have a larger, more inconsistent, more out of control, broken system than we had before, and that's almost inevitably going to produce less confidence from the Article Three appellate courts in more cases. Uh, being returned to be redone in accordance with fundamental fairness and due process, which is going to further add uh, to the backlog. Plus, I don't think that the backlog can be solved. I mean, it built up for many years. It built up because uh, DHS put made unwise decisions in how they were going to use judge time and put cases that probably shouldn't have been in court in the first place in court. Uh, It's a group effort, and uh, you can't Uh, make the bad judgment of the enforcement authorities and their overloading of dockets and the politicized interference with the dockets uh, go away just by working on the immigration court end. I think it's going to take uh, some policy changes at uh, DHS and ICE uh, to recognize that no court system is infinitely expandable. Every court system has an outer limit And normally, prosecuting offices have to work uh, within that normal outer limit rather than just uh, uh, putting anything into court uh, that they feel like without any type of discretion. You'll never be able to build uh, a system. I mean, look at just look at the numbers now. Uh, If you put uh, you if you put all everybody who is technically here illegally into a system, you'd have 11 million people in it. you couldn't build a court system that's going to do 11 million cases anytime in the foreseeable future. And if you did build one, then once the cases got done, it would be far too big and you'd have to unbuild it. 
So the whole approach of pretending like everybody who might be here illegally can and should be put in the immigration court system is, is totally ridiculous. And it's really an abuse of process by the political officials who are in charge of immigration enforcement. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Marika, sadly, I think we're at a place where the problems that uh, led to the creation of EOR back in 1983 have basically uh, reappeared in spades. Uh, the strong perception of an appearance and an actual lack of independence due to political, pretty overt political interference in the system and its placement within the Department of Justice a huge, unmanageable, out-of-control backlog, poor hiring practices, taking one to two years to hire a judge and then ending up with all the judges coming basically from the same background, quality control problems with the appellate courts finding air and a lot of the analysis of the board, and overall poor administration and management, no, no e-filing, uh, often inadequate notices to the public. Basically, it's pretty much all of the things that led to the creation of Eeyore in the first place have now reasserted themselves, only the problems are much worse because there are more judges, there are more cases on the backlog, there are more asylum cases, more lives are at stake. So in some ways, it's even worse than it was then. It, it, it was a an important but finite problem then. Right now we have a problem that could well topple the entire U.S. federal justice system. Yeah? Yep. That's, that's a bit dramatic. Uh, Do you really think it would topple the whole U.S. system? Could, yeah. I, I mean, I think that what'll happen is What's if- I mean, the worst case scenario is if Congress doesn't fix this through an independent court system, which is what is needed, then this system will continue to deteriorate. I don't care how fast they try and make the judges peddle or how skewed the department can uh, make the law. At some point, the Article Three courts are going to whistle foul as they did during Ashcroft's tenure where they tried to cut due process, speed everything up, and they'll just start sending things back in mass, and that will just make everything worse. Moreover, you're gonna have so many appeals taken that most of, you know, great portions of the Article Three Federal Circuit Court system are gonna be occupied on immigration uh, matters, they probably will have to take matters in, into their own hands and set forth some minimum standards for due process in immigration court and in detained immigration court. But given the fact that there are 11 different judicial circuits, that could well be different in each circuit. And you know, sometimes the Supreme Court gets around to resolving those, sometimes they don't. So what I foresee is a breakdown in the system a logjam in the Article Three courts, preoccupation in the Article Three courts, and basically this court system is going to end up in Article Three receivership. And while the Article Three courts are trying to straighten out the immigration court system, they're for sure not going to be doing some other things 
that they're supposed to be doing.